Well, hey, open up in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, and we're continuing our study. And if you are new to our church, um, it's a good morning that you're here. We're only just beginning, Mark. We're a few weeks in. We're still in chapter 1, and we're studying a portion uh, that really introduces us to Jesus Christ and his ministry and what he came to do and what he was, a, what he was like and what he accomplished. And one of the things that we're seeing, and I hope you see this, I hope you're, you're, you're getting to notice this. I hope this begins to stand out. It is this, that there's no neutrality with Jesus. You know what I mean when I say that? There's no neutrality with Jesus in that we can just kind of hear about him, yawn, and move on to the next thing. That Jesus is such a towering figure, such a confrontational even figure that we, upon hearing about who he is and what he's doing and what he claims and what he demands, we cannot just sit here and do nothing with it. Jesus demands a response. He's, he's not one that we could just remain indifferent about. As C.S. Lewis has rightly noted, he is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he, in fact, is Lord. And he's making these claims, and he will continue to make these claims that he is, in fact, Lord, and so therefore is deserving of our worship and our praise. Now, here's what happens in our text this morning. We're in chapter 1. We're coming to verses 14 and 15. And Jesus is going to introduce a word to us. Unfortunately, this is a word that sometimes is not brought up in a lot of American evangelical churches. It sometimes even is ignored or left out, and yet this is a word that is utterly crucial for us to understand what it even means to be a Christian, and what it even means to be right with God. I'm going to read the text. I wonder if you'll, you'll see the word there. Just two verses this morning. Of 14 and 15, the text goes like this. Now, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's think about this for a second. God incarnate, Jesus Christ, coming into the world on behalf of the Father to give a message to humanity, and he has a word that is for us. There's actually going to be two words. We're going to start by looking at one, and he starts with this message. Hey, here's what's happening. Here's what's going on. Repent and believe. He comes in to speak to humanity. God comes to speak to the world. And at the very heart of his message, at the very center of what God is saying to humanity, is this message of repentance, turning. Isn't it absolutely critical that we get this right? God is coming into the world. He has a message. It's the very first thing that Jesus even says in the Gospel of Mark. He's a message for all humanity. I don't know if there's anything more central to our lives than understanding how one gets right with 
God. That's what Jesus is coming to do. He's going to explain who God is. He's going to explain what it takes for humanity to be reconciled to God and to start off that message as he begins to teach and all through these gospels, he's going to teach all about God and all about who he is and all about what he's doing and who we are and what we need. He's going to teach all those things, but he's going to start with the fundamental message of how sinful humanity is made right with God. I mean, don't you want to know that? Isn't that like the biggest question? It's the question that might keep you up at night. Uh, how, how do I know that I'm right with God? How do I know that, that upon the day that I die and this little bodily tent that I live in is no longer, uh, the heart's no longer beating and the brain's no longer going and suddenly I'm done with this life and I exit this life and I go to stand before the one who made me and the one who made the universe and I stand before him? I want to know how to be right with him. And, and, and that's why this text in Scripture in general is so important because this is God's revealing to humanity exactly and precisely what it takes for humanity to be made right with God. He uses these words, repent and believe in the gospel. Sometimes we have different ways of talking about what it means to be right with God. We sometimes talk about asking Jesus into your heart, praying a prayer. The preacher will tell you to raise your hand at the end of a sermon, make a commitment, check a box. What does God require of humanity? What does God require of humanity? That's what we're going to see in this text. As Jesus comes into the world, he has a fundamental, central message for all humanity, first the people who he's preaching to here, but for all people in all places, for all time, a message that really hits home to us this morning, that Jesus is speaking to us this morning, and he has a message for us, and I want to look at this text. So what we do here at Grace Rancho, our, our hope and our goal is to just let the text speak, so to just to preach through the Bible. And so I don't have to be all that uh, clever. I just have to try to explain what is already there. So that's what we're going to do. We're only going to look at two verses, and I want to start by noting in verse 14, Jesus' location. That's the first thing this text does. It tells us a little about his location, both his chronological location and the timing of what he's doing, and also his geographical location and where he is. Let's look at verse 14. Uh, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, okay? Let's just orient ourselves here. John, who's that? That's John the Baptist. Chapter 1 has kind of been all about him up to this point. John the Baptist appeared. He was an Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he was prophesied. He was a prophet that came into the scene in Israel. And what was he doing? He basically had one big message. He's, he's saying this, the Messiah is coming. Uh, God is coming into the world. And I want all of you to be prepared for him. And so he's the one that was preparing the way for the Messiah. That's what John the Baptist did. And so he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. He's out in the wilderness. He's kind of an odd guy. He's wearing odd clothing in verse 6. He's, he's got camel's hair, and he's got a leather belt, and he eats locusts. And you've got to dip those things in wild honey, so he's doing that. 
And so he's just a, a strange fellow. But what those, those, those descriptions indicate is that he's actually an Old Testament prophet. He's wearing the stuff that an Old Testament prophet would have worn. And so all the people are going, there's something about this guy. He, he's coming on behalf of God. He's got, a, he's got a divine message. And even later on in the gospel, the people are not willing to say anything negative about John because they knew that he was a righteous man with a holy uh, message from heaven to give to people. So he's, he's preparing the way for Jesus. Now Jesus appears, and we get this in chapter uh, 1, verses 9 to 11, and Jesus and John have this encounter, and John says, I got to get, or Jesus says, I got to get baptized, and John somewhat reluctantly finally baptizes Jesus, and in that moment of his baptism, there's kind of the seal on Jesus's ministry. There's the verbal recognition of the Father. He says, you're my son. You're my beloved son. You're the one. The Father affirms it. And the Spirit, remember, comes out of the heavens and descends upon the Son, again, inaugurating Jesus. He's preparing for his public ministry. But instead of going straight into ministry, where does he go? In verses 12 and 13, he goes to the wilderness. And there he's tempted for 40 days. This is what we talked about last week, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness for 40 days as he enters into the heart of the cursed creation, as he faces off with the enemy of God, he overcomes the temptation, he succeeds in that confrontation, in that battle, and now we come to verse 14. It says, after John was arrested. John had been doing his work, and now he's arrested. Another evidence that being faithful to God does not, I repeat, does not result in a comfy and cozy life. Jesus will go on to demonstrate that as he perfectly obeys the Father and ends up on a cross. And so Jesus uh, is, is being proclaimed by John. John gets arrested. John's ministry comes to a close. And Jesus is now going to take the baton and begin a public ministry. You're seeing that in verse 14. There's probably, just so you know, if you're one to write in your Bible, uh, some of you aren't yet, and I'd encourage you, jot this down, like get in your Bible, note things up, it helps it become yours. Between verses 13 and 14, there's probably about one year. So maybe you could jot that down. One year between verses 13 and 14, and so Jesus would have had time to recover from fasting for 40 days, recover from his time in the wilderness, uh, the, the, the events of John chapters 2 through 4 happen between those uh, verses. They're sometimes called the obscure year because Jesus, although he's doing some things, he's not really all that public yet in his ministry. And it says that he comes to Galilee. Here's our geography. He comes to Galilee. And just to, so you know, the wilderness is kind of the middle section. Galilee is up in the north. Jerusalem and Judea, that's in the south. Where would you want to go if you wanted to start a big public ministry to the Jews? You would have wanted to go to Jerusalem. That would have made more sense. You would have gone south. That's where all the religious people were, the elites. That's where all the Pharisees wanted to be. That's where the religious system was set up. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't go down there. Uh, this is kind of a backhanded slight against the system of the day. It was corrupt. It was all legalistic. It was all external. Jesus wants nothing to, nothing to do with that. He goes up north to Galilee. That's the location of Jesus. So that hopefully gets up some bearing, okay? Now let's, that was Jesus' location. Let's look at Jesus' method. 
He comes into Galilee, and what is the verb that describes what he's doing? You see here? He is proclaiming the gospel of God. He is coming into this region of Galilee. Galilee's a region. There's a lot of different cities there. And he's coming in, and he is proclaiming. Caruso in the Greek, it means preaching. It's the idea that the king has given a message, and what he's doing, what his job, is not to tamper with the message, it's not to tweak it, it's not to adjust it to make it so it fits what he wants. The messenger has to give the message of the king. That's what it means. This is a divine announcement. And so when Jesus is preaching, this is again, and you can even see it right there in the text, the gospel of God. The the divine son of God is entering into the world. He's come, and now he's preaching God's message, God's gospel to the people there in Galilee. Now, I want you to to note something. Here's here's Jesus. He's come to uh, redeem his people. 1 John 3, 8 says, The son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So here's the son of God. He's entering into the world. He's going to face off with the serpent in temptation, or with, with Satan in the temptation. He, he goes, uh, he faces off with them. His, his, his desire is to uh, push him back and establish God's truth in the world. And you might ask yourself this question, well, how would, how would I do it? If I wanted to push back Satan, if I wanted to crush the head of the serpent, as Genesis 3.15 says that he's going to do, if he wants to destroy the works of the devil, how might he do that? The Son of God would come in. I mean, you could maybe imagine it like this. He gets his massive army. He gets all his, the, the hosts of heaven. He dethrones Caesar. He takes the throne of Jerusalem immediately. He wipes out his enemies He establishes a righteous rule. Does Jesus do any of those things? Not yet. Not yet. What what does he do? He's preaching. This this just seems odd. He's preaching. He, He is the eternal son of God. He's existed in eternity past. He enters into his creation, and now he's coming to accomplish this cosmic plan of redemption, and he, he doesn't have an army. He doesn't have any fanfare. He is an obscure person. He goes into an obscure place, and he's preaching, a method that many people have have thought is an outdated way of communicating. Who preaches anymore? Jesus comes preaching. Let's just think about this for a little bit. Jesus comes as God incarnate, speaking truth about God, about himself, about humanity, about humanity's greatest need. Our God speaks. He's a speaking God. He is a speaking, revealing God. He is not silent. He is not dumb and mute, he is a God that reveals in the speaking of his voice. Uh, You could read the the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and one of the things you'd notice is that when Isaiah is contrasting the false gods of the Old Testament nations, they all had their idols, 
And they worshiped their idols and they would chop down a tree and they would form a little nice little shaped, you know, thing to bow down to. They'd get an idol or they'd get a piece of stone, they'd chisel it out, make some eyes, make, some, make a nose, make some, um, a mouth. And they'd look at that thing and they'd, they'd worship it and they'd pray to it. And they would, uh, you know, worship this thing. They've set it up in their house. They got a little idol, a little God for them. And, and Isaiah, as he's writing the, uh, this, these prophecies in the Old Testament, he, he wants to show a difference. He goes, you know what the difference is? between what those nations do with their false gods. You know what the fundamental difference is? It's that those gods don't speak. They don't talk. They don't say anything. They're dumb. They're mute. You can't know anything they're thinking. You can't know anything about them. Even if they were real, you couldn't know them because they don't talk. In the contrast with the true God, He speaks. He reveals Himself. He wants to be known. He wants to be recognized for who He is. He is not a God who has remained so high and transcendent in the heavens that we can never know Him. He has actually allowed Himself to be known by the speaking of His Word and primarily Jesus, God Himself, God the Son, God incarnate is speaking, preaching, revealing Himself. Let's think about this. Genesis 1.1. God wants to create the universe. How does he do it? He speaks. Let there be light. Light. He speaks. Genesis 1 is is a chronicling of God speaking and things happening. Creating. Out of nothing, something. Why? The power of the word of God does that. When God wants to bring life to these freshly formed, uh, from the dust bodies, Adam and Eve, he speaks. The breath of his mouth, Genesis 2 describes. When God wants to bring people to spiritual life, how does he do it? It is through his word. God speaks. When the church is going to be built up, how is that going to happen? It is from God speaking. We cannot know God unless he reveals himself, and he has revealed himself in words. He doesn't paint a portrait, he doesn't show a movie. He speaks, and he inscripturates his words in the text. When you read the Bible, you are reading God's words. 1 Samuel chapter 3 is very fascinating. You jot this down just so you know. It says this. There's a little bit of a Hebrew parallelism in this verse. It says, now Samuel, young man Samuel, did not yet know the Lord. And then listen to this parallel description of his condition. He didn't yet know the Lord. And then it says, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Do you you see what the parallelism is doing? He did not know the Lord. Why? Because the word had not yet revealed it to him. We cannot know God until the word reveals God to us. Now, isn't it good news then that Jesus comes preaching? You know what he's doing? He's revealing God to the world. You can't reason your way to God. You can't figure it out. You can't just lock yourself up in a room and go, okay, what must God be like? I can, I can think through it on rationalistic terms and, and get to figure out who he is. We can't do that. Our minds are too finite and fallen to be able to do that. Instead, God speaks. Jesus comes preaching, and he preaches so that we might know him. Now, if you don't know God, 
yet. If you don't have a relationship with God yet, this is really good news for you. Because the very fact that this is in the Bible and the very fact that this is what Jesus did is demonstrating the reality that God wants to be known. And he wants you to know him. And not just know him in the sense that you have some data in your mind about what he's like. He wants you to have a relationship with him. That is the point of scripture that we know God. That we have a relationship with him. Well, how do we do that? We're going to get to that in a second. Now, I think that this is uh, an important point that it's worth just reflecting on, as we have been doing. Uh, maybe some of you guys have been in the evangelical church in America long enough to have a sense that uh, there's a need of some form of revival. You ever thought that? Something's got to change. Something's got to give. Uh, the, the, the church in America in general, there's, there's got to be new life. There's got to be something. Why, you might even ask, is the church, generally speaking, so sick? So sickly, it seems like at times. And I think we have to answer it this way. Fundamentally, it is because we just don't have that high a view of the Word of God. Right? I mean, how often is it that we see churches, because they don't really have that high a view of God, they, they always are trying to add a little more zing to the service. Could you add a little more zing to the force that created the universe? I mean, I don't think, I think it's enough zing. We got all the zing we need in the Word of God. And we don't need to add to it. It's just a matter of getting it out, exposing the text, letting God speak. This is the same force that brought the universe into existence. If we have a low view of Scripture, we will have a low view of preaching. If we have a low view of preaching, we will scrape and claw at anything we can to try to make our services more appealing. We will get the laser lights and the fog machines and the big band, and we'll do all we can just to make it a little cooler to be here. Now, I'm not saying those things are, are sinful and wrong. I am saying that if we don't think the Word is enough and sufficient to bring life to the church, to bring salvation to God's people, to sanctify us and to commission us out into the world, I think we have a low view of Scripture. Rather, church, let's be a people that loves the Word of God, that hungers for the Word of God, that you come in not to hear some flashy preacher, but you come to hear the Word of God because God, God speaks. And this is remarkable that he would do such a thing and that he would give us such a word. Jesus comes proclaiming. Jesus comes preaching. John the Baptist came proclaiming. The same word is used of his ministry. Jesus came preaching. The same word is used for what he did as he preaches the word of God. You know what Jesus says to the apostles? They're there to go and they're to be preaching the word of God. You know what Paul the apostle says to Timothy who's pastoring a church? That Timothy is meant to be preaching. This is what is meant to be central in the life of the church. It is started in ages past with God speaking, and all through the centuries up till now, all faithful churches stand upon the Word of God. And we will, as far as we can, as we remain faithful, we will always and ever be preaching the Word of God. And fads, they'll come and they'll go, and trends will come and they go, but ever at the middle of our life together will be the centrality of God and if we want God to be central, we must let him speak. 
And the way we do that is we stand up and try to explain what's there in the Bible. That's why Jesus came out. Look at verse 38 of chapter 1, just real quick. Everyone wants him to heal. Everyone's gathering around him to heal. They're searching for him. In verse 37, the disciples say, hey, everyone's searching for you. In verse 38, Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also. Why? For that is why I came out. I mean, it's the heart of the Savior to reveal who God is. Do we value biblical preaching, church? Let's be a church that loves and prizes and values expositional preaching. I've been uh, often uh, talked to after a church service and people will come up to me and they have comments on the, the, the sermon and some comments are great and others are uh, less than helpful. Uh, I'm kidding. I usually really do enjoy all the feedback I get. And, and yeah, here's my favorite. My favorite kind of feedback is when someone says, you helped me understand this. And this is how I'm applying this to my life. It, it wasn't necessarily the great story you told, although those are sometimes really necessary, or the metaphor that you used, although those are sometimes very helpful as well. But I love it when people are grasping Scripture, and then they're applying Scripture to their life, and they're growing in their dependence upon Scripture rather than their dependence upon a preacher. So Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God. Let's look at now his message. So that was his method. He, he came preaching. Well, what's his message? What's he saying? And we already said it a little bit. Here it is, the gospel of God, the gospel. The word gospel means good news. The word gospel refers to life-changing, world-tilting, breathtaking news. It's news. Jesus is sent from God, the Father, and he's in the world now, and he's proclaiming, and he's, pro he's preaching a message, and the message it could be described as news. Really, really good news. It's not a lifestyle that he's setting up. It's not a system of rituals you now need to adopt. It's not a message that you just need to do better, try harder, that's not what he's doing. He, he's got news. It's news. It's just news. It's something has happened. Something is happening. Here's news for you. It's an announcement to be embraced. I hope this is, is clear. We've got to make this point that Christianity is not a self-help program. It's not a self-help program. We're not here because we all are, are just trying to help ourselves. You know why we're here? We've despaired of being able to ever help ourselves. We, we've gotten to the point where we know that we got nothing. We, we can't honor God with our lives. We can't even live the way God has called us to live unless God does something on our behalf for us and in us. And, and, and if he doesn't do that, then I'm sunk because I, I got no options. I have no strength within me. And so what is the gospel? It's not fix yourself it's not get better. It's not the message of human achievement and all the things you can do in the world. The gospel is this. It is a divine accomplishment that is being announced to humanity. It is something God has done. It is good news of what God has done, what he has accomplished for humanity. 
It's a message of news to be spread throughout all the world. It is the gospel of God, not the gospel of you. It's not the things you can do, have done, will do. It's the gospel of what God has done. Here, here's an illustration just to hopefully let this land and hit home. Imagine this. You're in a, a concentration camp in World War II. You've heard the guards discussing that they're taking you to the gas chamber next week. You're afraid for your life. You have no way out. And somehow, someway, one of your friends there trapped with you has smuggled in from the outside a radio. In that radio, you've opened it up and you're getting the message from the outside. And what it's telling you is this. The, your friends are on their way. They have an army that is going to obliterate the enemy. You're going to be set free. You're going to be released. And the death that you fear, you no longer need to fear. It's something that the news itself, upon hearing it, you go, it changes everything, and yet it doesn't necessarily change where you're at. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, the message isn't, okay, you got to do this, 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 and if you do enough things, then suddenly you can maybe be able to get free. Here's what it is. This has happened. Believe it. Just really believe it. And when you believe what God has done in Jesus Christ, it changes everything. We don't get warped out of the world in the instant we have faith in Jesus Christ. We live in a fallen world still. And yet we no longer fear death. We no longer fear hell. We no longer fear the enemy. Why? Because we have heard the announcement of God's victory over those things. God is saying in his announcement, I've come. I've come to rescue everyone who trusts in me. I've come to redeem everyone who turns to me. I've come to forgive everyone who looks to me. And I'm going to the cross to accomplish their salvation on their behalf because they could never do it for themselves. And then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to empower them to live the life I've called them to live. And what do you do? You don't earn that. You don't work for that. You don't start doing rituals to attain that. You believe that. And it changes everything. Your attitude changes, your hope changes, your heart changes. What you live for changes. How you live in this fallen world changes. It changes everything. The message that he's proclaiming is gospel. Really good news. It's really good news. And let's look at the content of the gospel. What's the content of the message? Because he goes on to say, the gospel of God, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's look at some of those phrases one by one. The time is fulfilled. What does he mean there? Very simply, this is what Jesus is saying, that everything in ages past has been leading up to this point. Everything from ages past, everything in the Old Testament that you read about is laying the foundation for who Jesus is, for us to understand who he is, and everything is pointing us to this central event in all of human history. When the Son of God enters creation, lives the perfect life we could never live, and goes to the cross to pay for the sins of all his children, he's saying that the time's up. Everything's leading up to this. This is the hour in human history all has been waiting for. All throughout the eternal ages of human history, we will look back at this, what Jesus did for us in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. And we will worship him for that. All of humanity's existence will be centered around this 
particular time of Jesus' work, the time is fulfilled. It goes on to say, then the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying time, the time is here and a kingdom is coming. A kingdom's coming. God had been promising a kingdom for thousands of years throughout the Old Testament. When you read it, you get this idea that there's, this has been a long time coming. Like you, you encounter it in Genesis chapter, and all through Genesis. In the very beginning, all through Genesis is hinting that this is uh, the world, this is God's world, he is king, and that he's going to allow people to rule over it. And people keep failing, the human kings that he sets up keep failing, and yet God has this promised kingdom that one day he will establish his own kingdom on the earth. You guys remember in the Old Testament, King David established the nation of Israel and then set it up as this great and prosperous kingdom. And his son after him, Solomon, came along and it began to fracture in his day toward the end. And his sons, it totally fractured and split. The kingdom that God had promised was not uh, there anymore. And the people of Israel were going, well, what, what's, about, what's the deal with all these promises? Isn't there going to be a king? I mean, the second Samuel verse 7, David was promised. This, this, these were the words of the prophets promised to him. He said, there, he, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David would have thought, okay, my son is going to come. He's going to establish a kingdom forever. It's going to last forever. And yet it, it fractured and broke into pieces. What's up with that? Well, you get to the prophets, Isaiah and others. They all start hinting at and describing this kingdom. Many of us in, in Christmas time will read or, or listen to song about Isaiah 9. You ever, you ever heard these, these words? He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. Listen to this. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he's promising that one would come, even after the kingdom is kind of shattered, that one would come and rule from the throne of David. Set up a kingdom. Who's that going to be? Jeremiah took up the same exact prophecies in chapter 23. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. Daniel prophesied, The Son of Man is coming. He will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all nations and all peoples and all languages should serve him, and his dominion will be an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away. And this is what the Old Testament people of God were longing for, the the kingdom. When's the kingdom going to come? Now Jesus appears. And he's got a message. Time's up. Time's fulfilled. Everything you've heard about, everything you've experienced, all of humanity's experiences has been leading up to this, and now the kingdom is at hand. Whew, that's quite a message. Kingdom's here? This is like all my hopes and dreams? This is like establishing righteousness in the world. That's coming now? Now, sometimes we think that, what what does it mean that the the kingdom has, has come? What does that mean? In the Old Testament, it's quite clear that the Old Testament kingdom that was promised was an actual literal kingdom on a throne in Jerusalem, setting up a kingdom there. That's not happened yet. What did Jesus do? Did he really establish a kingdom? What's going on here? What's happening here is there's also spiritual dimensions to the kingdom. 
There's things that need to happen in the hearts of people. When referring to this kingdom, Jeremiah 31 promised that the, that the Spirit would write the laws of God on the hearts of the people. In Ezekiel, there was this amazing promise that the Spirit would enter into the hearts of God's people, that the old stony heart would be removed and a new spiritual heart would be given. They would be cleansed. The Spirit would indwell them and cause them to walk in the ways of God. So you say, what's happening here? Well, here's what's happening. The kingdom, in one sense, is not yet. We're still awaiting a future kingdom that will come where Jesus reigns in Jerusalem, physically, in the world, and yet, even now, the spiritual dynamics of the kingdom are breaking into the world in the new covenant, new hearts, new minds. The Holy Spirit poured out and indwelling every believer. And so there are aspects we could say that are present now, and yet we await a kingdom. We even, when we took communion, one of the things we do, we, we talk about, is we look forward to the coming kingdom. We're looking forward to a real kingdom someday with Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth. Now, I want to pause real quick, go back to our text, and I want to note something here. This message about a coming kingdom is called gospel. You see that in the text? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, this is all under the, the, the phrase, he's proclaiming gospel. Let me ask you this. If a foreign nation said, our kingdom's coming. Time's up. Our kingdom's coming. We're going to be establishing our kingdom here. How would we respond? Go, whoa, no, you're not. This land is my land. We would take up arms. We say, this is our land. Hang on a second. Jesus is saying, there's a kingdom coming. There is a divine kingdom. It's at hand, it's right here, it's coming. And yet he's also saying this is very good news. To, to, to illustrate this, let me just draw a little picture in your mind. Imagine you are part of an old west town. Some of you grew up on Louis L'Amour. And you could picture in your mind the old west. And there's a town where there is no law. It's run by th thieves and outlaws. And people kind of do what they want. And they run the town however they want. And imagine a sheriff comes to town. And the sheriff enters in, you could almost imagine in your mind's eye, the music playing, the tumbleweed rolls by. <laughs> and he goes, here comes the law. He says, there's a new sheriff in town. Let me ask you this. Is that good news for the town? I hear yeses and I hear noes. <laughs> and the answer is, you're both right, but depends on whose side you're on, right? If you're one of those thieves, this is very bad news. It is bad news that a sheriff is coming to town. Why? Because you can't keep up with the way you've been living life anymore. Things have to change. You can't keep it up. You can't live a life without law when the sheriff comes to town. Now, if you're on the side of lawfulness, this is very good news. Because now law and justice and righteousness will be established in the land. Now here's what's happening on a cosmic scale. 
God has sent his son into the world to establish a kingdom. This is a kingdom of righteousness and truth and purity. And, and it is a, a kingdom that will reign and it will establish its justice in the land. And all wickedness will be eradicated. All wickedness will be excluded. In fact, this is exactly what Paul describes 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a kingdom coming, but those people who are unrighteous, they're not getting in. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Friends, I want to say this. That's a problem for a sinful humanity. The kingdom that's coming is a big threat to sinners everywhere. It's a threat to me if I don't have my sins taken care of. It's a giant threat to me if I don't have a solution for my problem. I'm a sinner. And if I don't have something to deal with my guilt, if I don't have something to deal with my sins, I'm, I'm the guilty party and the king who's coming to establish justice and righteousness cannot allow me to live there because I am not a righteous man. And so this is really bad news first. I mean, Revelation 21 verse 27 says that there's nothing unclean that will ever enter it, ever. That means all-time exclusion from the kingdom for sinners. I want you to feel the weight of this. That if you're a sinner, that the kingdom of God that Jesus announces is bad news. Except, hold on, the text said it was good news, right? It said it was gospel. So why, why is it good news that a kingdom's coming if all humanity is sinful? By the way, that's what the Bible teaches. We're all criminals and thieves and outlaws, all of us, without exception. And the king is coming to establish justice and righteousness in the world. This is bad news for all of us, except look at what Jesus says. Here's our fourth point. This is Jesus' demand. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. To use the kingdom analogy, it's, it's like this. The, the king is coming. He's establishing his righteous reign. It will bring peace and harmony and joy and eternal life and happiness to everyone who's in the kingdom. No one sinful will ever be allowed in there. And yet, the king extends terms of surrender. He says, repent. Repent. What does that mean? It means change your mind about your sin and your rebellion. It means change your mind about who God is. It means change your mind about His Son. It goes, change your mind. He is no longer irrelevant. He is King. He is Lord. He is all. Change your mind and embrace the truth about His Son. And not only changing your mind, change your heart. See Him for who He is and love Him and appreciate Him for who He is, the Son of God. Repent. Lay down your arms, confess your sin, admit your bankruptcy, bow before him, make him Lord, be his servant. This is all parts of repentance. And you know what the king does? When people repent, you know what the king does? 
He forgives your treason. He wipes away all your sin. He pays all your debts. He pardons all your iniquities. He puts on royal robes. He gives you a crown. He shares His infinite riches with you. He adopts you into His family. He loves you eternally for all time and you will never fall out of the love of God. This is an invitation to infinite love. This is an invitation of grace. The call to repent is not God saying there's all these things you want and because I don't like you, I don't want you to have those things. This is Jesus saying all the things you've been living for will not satisfy. They will never scratch the itch of your soul. They will never heal the ache and the longing that you have. And the only thing that will is if you turn from those things of the world and you turn to me and embrace me, you will be saved and forgiven and your heart will be filled with a love you've never known and you'll have a treasure you've never experienced and a destiny for all time with the one who made you. He says repent. He didn't say that you need to ask Jesus into your heart, pray a prayer, check a box, agree with some statement. He says, there's a kingdom and a king coming. You already are serving a kingdom. Just know that. You're already serving a kingdom. The question is not, am I serving a king in a kingdom? The question is, whose kingdom are you serving? kingdom of self or the kingdom of God. Repentance is this. I denounce the kingdom of self. I am no longer a citizen of that kingdom. I turn away from living for myself and I turn to Jesus Christ. I'm going to serve in this kingdom where grace reigns, where love reigns. I'm going to be a part of a kingdom of genuine love with a king who loves me. This is an upside down kingdom where the king acts like a servant and the servants are treated like kings. And this is what it's like to be welcomed into God's kingdom. And how do you do it? You repent. You give up. You declare moral bankruptcy. You know you can't save yourself. And then what do you do? That second word, it's believe. You believe in the gospel. Repentance is turning away from your own self-reliance. It's turning away from your own sin. It's turning away from your own ability to lead your own life. It's turning away from those things, and that's repentance. What's belief? It is now embracing Christ. It's embracing His truth. It's embracing His Lordship. It's embracing His Word. This is what Jesus demands of the world. There's one door. One door into reconciliation with God, and above that door are two bold words, all who enter must repent and believe. I wonder if there are any here who have not yet repented of their sin, and repented of their self-reliance. I wonder if there's any here, and there's, there's common, they're in churches everywhere, people who have because they believe certain things about God, have good ideas and good feelings about Jesus, and at some point in their life they prayed some prayer, I wonder if some people are thinking that they've been reconciled to God because of those things. But they have never repented. 
Isn't it fascinating that the first thing that Jesus teaches is repentance? Lay down your arms, turn aside, change your life, come and follow Jesus. Have you repented of your sin? To come and turn to the grace of God? It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean you don't struggle anymore. It means that you no longer side with sin. You are siding with Jesus against sin. And your new life in Christ is to follow Him no matter the cost. See, this is really good news. Because God is revealing the way that you can get right with Him. He's revealing the truth about who we are. We need to repent. He's revealing the reality of our condition and saying, there's a way to be made right with God. This is really good news. And here's, the, here's why it's so good news. That God loves to save sinners. He delights in redeeming the lost. You say, well, how do I know that? How do I know that He would save me? How do I know that He wants to save me? You know what? Jesus, He not only preaches, repent and believe. You want to know the length He will go to demonstrate the love of God for the people He came to save. How far will He go? Listen, He will go to a scandalous criminal's cross. He will die there a torturous death. He will be spit upon. He will be mocked. He will be treated like scum. He will be treated as if He committed all your sins by God. He will bear the wrath of God that you deserved in your place. All the, the full and furious wrath of the Father will be put on Him. Why? To demonstrate He loves you. And to demonstrate that He has done everything to save you. And now the door is wide open. And the greatest of sinners, the chief of sinners, can come into the Father through Jesus Christ's work. The cross is an indication of the immense and mighty and powerful love of God. And so if you're not yet saved, listen, come. There's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to earn. You don't have to fix yourself up first. The doors are wide open because Jesus has swung them open by his death and resurrection on the cross. Now he's alive. Jesus is still shouting to all the world, anyone who has ears to hear, he's saying, repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. Be saved from your sins. Be forgiven. Be clothed in white robes. And be welcomed into the family of God. Be adopted for all eternity. And never cease to enjoy the blessings that God will shower upon you. What a God. What a salvation. And it's available to anyone who will come and have it. Some have used this illustration and I find it helpful. Think of it this way. Your heart is like a boardroom. You can imagine it. The big table, the leather chairs, there's coffee, everyone's sitting around it, a big whiteboard. The committee's there. And every person at every chair kind of represents a different part of you. You got your social self, your private self, your work self, your church self, your recreational self, your religious self, all those selves in your heart sitting around the table. You're arguing and debating about what you should do with your life, what you should pursue, who you should be with, all those things. It seems like there's constant agitation in your life. This is what we're all like. We've got all kinds of stirring desires and affections going on in the boardroom of our hearts. All kinds of competing desires, competing goals, competing ambitions. 
What does it mean to accept Jesus? It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that you pull up another seat and you say, Jesus, have a seat too. Engage in debate. You get a vote too. All these other people around the table, they all have votes and I'll give you a vote too, Jesus. This is what repentance is. You say, Jesus, we, we can't do this. There's nothing that we've been able to do that would honor you. All we've done is lead our lives into more and more dysfunction, into distance from you, God. I can't do this. Jesus, fire all of us. Take a seat at the head of the table. Call the shots. Lead my life. Help me. I can't save myself. I can't lead myself. I need someone else to rule me. That's repentance. And listen, the people who think they got their lives together will never do that. And that's why Jesus said, I came to save sinners. Are you a sinner? He came for you. And if you're willing to give him the seat at the table, because you're so in utter bankruptcy before him, in love and in grace, he will take the reins of your life. He will give you a new family. He will shower you in amazing grace for all eternity as he leads you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I wonder if any of you have just given Jesus a vote at the table of your life. Because what Jesus is calling every person here to do is to repent, to call him Lord, to fall before him in worship, and then commit to a life of obedience to follow him, not to earn anything, but because we love him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gracious invitation to repent. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that has not yet turned from sin turned from self-righteousness and entrusted their lives to Jesus, Lord, we ask that they would do that this very moment. And Lord, the rest of us, we would be rejoicing that you would save such low wretches like us. We worship you because you save. We don't save ourselves. And Lord, again, we renounce our right to rule in our kingdom. And we say, Lord, we serve you, the King. We serve your kingdom, not our own. And we also admit we cannot do it without your help. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.